that and take our Bibles this morning, please. John chapter 18. If you're a guest or visitor here at Heritage Baptist Church, welcome to our church this morning. We're so honored that you're here, and uh, we're just thankful for how God is building this church and folks coming from afar. Believe it or not, we have families that come from Lodi and Modesto and up in Petaluma, and you say, how far away is that? Well, just get in your car and drive. If you're in traffic, you'll find it's pretty far away. And uh, we have a family visit from Santa Clara this morning, and a lot of locals here. We're thankful for all the people that are here. Thank you for coming to our church. We know there's many places you could choose to go, and we're honored that you're here at Heritage Baptist Church. This has been a really busy weekend. Uh, we had a uh, congratulate the Medina family. Their daughter uh, was married on Friday, and a blessing on that. And I was afraid Brother Tick was not going to give his daughter away, as I had said. Who gives this? Who gives Therese to this man, Chris? And I was afraid Brother Tick would say, "Not me." <laughs> At our rehearsal, he did say that, you know. But anyway, but we're thank we're thankful for that. And then yesterday, if you'll pray for uh, Krista Williams' family, her grandmother. Uh, was got assurance of her salvation, and then just about six, four, four or five weeks ago, she was baptized in our church with her adult daughter, Yolanda, but uh, her health took a turn for the worse, and the Lord took her home just a few days ago, and then the same day, just a few hours later, um, Lisa Medina, um, her grandfather, who we led, we led to Christ back in May of 2017, he went home to be with the Lord after just battling with an illness, and it just took a turn for the worse the day before. And so we have his service tomorrow. He'll be in prayer for that. So maybe we'll be a busy weekend just with a lot of things like that. And, and uh, you know, those, those are very emotional moments because you're just trying to minister to the families and be a blessing to them. And so you help, you pray for us about that. Tonight, I, I hope you'll be back this evening for the service tonight. In fact, you should be back. Uh, we're going to look at Psalms 127 and 128. And the, the series theme has been I'm Going Higher. And tonight we're going to be looking at two psalms that deal with I'm Going Higher in my family. And uh, there's a very, very important verse that sometimes even I mistakenly have not given the right emphasis to it. But in Psalms 127, verse 1, it says, except the Lord build the house. We're not supposed to build the house. He's supposed to build the house. He's the one building the house. And so we're going to look at tonight the house that God builds. And uh, we're going to look at the house, the kind of house that God builds. And I, I hope you'll come tonight to encourage your marriage encourage you about your parenting, encourage you maybe if you're having conflicts with your parents. And by the way, every child does. Every child has conflict with their parents. You, you just come tonight and let the Word of God minister to you and how to have God's blessing hand. Some of you are just getting started in building a home, young couples, and we want to pray that the Lord will help you. Some of you are struggling, and we want to pray that the Lord will help us there. Because you know what? I, I said this Wednesday night. The Bible says despise not prophecies. And I said this on Wednesday night about, you know, prophecy, of course, we believe today is referring to the fourth telling of God's word, the preaching of God's word. But I said this Wednesday night, I said, you know, when God's word is preached, it's confrontational. You know, it just meets us right where we're at. But it's also counseling. And uh, tonight will be some good family counseling. You'll come this evening, no matter where you're at in your stage of life, you'll be here this evening. It'll be a great encouragement, helped us. And uh, next weekend, we have the Married Couples Conference on Saturday, and we're hoping a few more of you will sign up and pay your balances up today and be a part of it. It'll be a great blessing for you, a great investment you'll make in your marriage there, so it'll be a blessing. Well, if you don't have a King James Version Bible, let me tell you what to do. If you don't have a King James Version, look over to the side of you, and hopefully the person next to you has a King James Version. Or if they're a good member of our church, they'll share their Bible with you. Amen? And they'll share their King James Version with you, so you're in the right translation to follow where we're at. And uh, so you just get exactly, because you say, why, why the King James Version? Well, some of the contemporary versions have missing words and missing verses. And, you know, I just some of the opinion, when they start taking things out, there's something wrong with that there. And uh, if you study your Bible very carefully, you take the King James and, again, the history of it. 
and uh, compare it to the contemporary versions and, and, the, and the modern text, underlying texts that they've used, that those interpretations or those translation methodologies have, have resulted in missing verses and missing words. And you don't want to miss things like that. That's very important because you don't play with God's word. God's word is eternal. And God's word is final. We don't want to mess with God's word. His word is forever. You know, man, you can't give your opinion about God's word. It's thus saith the Lord. Amen. And when you read the Old Testament, when the word of God came to the prophets, it says, for the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And so, you know, as we've labored in the word to come this morning, we come to feed your soul and to help you grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Enough of the infomercials. Uh, John chapter 18 this morning. You there? How about we do this? I want us to read nine verses. I'm going to be reading the odd number of verses. I'd like you to read the even number of verses, okay? So I'll start with verse 1. You go to verse 2. And verse 9, we'll all read it together. I'll listen as I start off this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words... Now remember, he can't, he's just... He's now entering to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been at the foot of the Garden of Gethsemane, the foot of Mount Olives with the disciples. Now, and he's just prayed a, a, an incredible prayer. We saw that last week. Now he's entering the Garden of Gethsemane. We're getting to what we call the, the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, he went forth with his, with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Congregation, and Judas also. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Altogether, congregation, Jesus. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him, stood with them. Congregation, verse 6. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Altogether, Jesus answered, That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. What a powerful passage of Scripture. I think if you took some time to study John 18, there's probably maybe as many as 10 or 12 powerful themes. I look at this verse here in verse 6. And it says, as soon as he said unto them, he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Can you imagine how powerful the word of the Lord Jesus Christ is? I wonder as we read his word this morning, are we at the place we would fall backwards to the ground? The power of his word. I think about verse 1, the brook Kidron was Passover time. Do you know during Passover time they say that the priests prepared to slaughter as many as 200,000 Lambs. And where they slaughtered those lambs, there was a conduit where the blood from all the slaughtering, the blood would flow down from that conduit and empty off into the Kidron River or Kidron Stream. The Brook Kidron, as was known. Would be at that time, the Brook Kidron was very bloody red. Passover is upon them. 
In just a few hours, Jesus would die for the sins of the world. And here, here's the thing about this this morning. We know how this unfolds if we've read the Scripture. And we know what's going to happen. But this is all unfolding at that moment of time. And in the minds of those who are there, as far as the disciples are concerned, they're really apprehensive and hoping that, you know, this doesn't really happen. And on the other hand, we see a personality here that there's a change of things that should bother us this morning. We notice emphasis is given in verse 2. It says, and Judas also. And then again in verse 3, Judas then. And then again in verse 5, and Judas also, which betrayed him. I want to preach you this morning a message. I pray that we will take our pencils out and our note papers, but I pray we'll listen very carefully. And I want us to notice this morning the marks of Judas. You cannot preach through Scripture without looking at the marks of Judas. Father, this morning, for just a few minutes, help us today. We didn't come here to be entertained. We didn't come here this morning to just fill up time. Lord, our souls are hungering. Our souls are needy. Our hearts, Lord, are beating a little bit faster this morning because we need you. And Father, there's a, there's a message here for me and for your sweet congregation, your sheep for whom you died for. And I pray that you'd feed this wonderful flock of God, minister to their hearts, minister to their souls, impress on us, Lord, that which we need to hear, remove every distraction, everything that would occupy our thoughts, that would keep us from thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we seek, Lord, with your power to lift him up, and that today we would rejoice in the victory you've given us. At the same time, we would be cautioned as we look at the marks of a Judas, and today our hearts would be Strengthen in your might. Transform, Lord, I pray, casual believers into committed followers. Transform, I pray, this morning, attendees into serving members. Transform, God, someone who just walks about saying they're a Christian to being someone that will say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray for a congregation that will count the cost and rise up and recognize the importance of being clearly identified with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I pray this morning that for friends who are here, who are not certain about where they'll spend eternity, they're not sure heaven's their home, or maybe they have subscribed to a philosophy that emphasizes good works and religion and church membership and all of these type of things and realizing none of those things is what saves us. It's the grace of God that saves us. And I pray for, Lord, folks this morning who've thought and contemplated about salvation that today would be the day they're born again into the family of God. Use this service, Lord, to make a great impression on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout history, we have, and some of us have lived through this, throughout history, we have notable, infamous men and women who are known for horrific deeds they've committed. Adolf Hitler, 
the iron hand he ruled with Nazi Germany, the murder of millions of Jews, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and the Khmer Rouge, the murder of millions of Cambodians, Mao Zedong in China, slaughtered hundreds and millions, Saddam Hussein, the senseless slaughter of Iraqis, chemical weaponry, Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of terrorism, and let us never forget that on September 11, 2001, that was a defining moment in the history of the United States of America. Almost 3,000, perhaps over 3,000 Americans died in a moment's instance when the trade towers went under and several others were killed in those plane crashes. But another man who stands out historically to us that perhaps is not known as a mass murderer and a, a person who instigated genocide, he would not be like the Libyan dictators and the Uganda dictators and the Asian dictators and all of those different men who are infamously, infamously known for their deeds. But another man who captures our attention, who's all over Scripture, is a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot, if you have to look at all the treacheries that ever happened in the world, all the betrayals that ever occurred, the greatest betrayal that ever occurred was this man betraying our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I think about the word betrayal, the Bible says in John 18, verse 2, and Judas also which betrayed him. Betrayal is a word that describes, and probably is not even strong enough, it's a word describing the highest act of treachery and disloyalty. Unless you've been betrayed, you don't really understand the hurt, the dismay, the falling apart of your world. You really don't understand that until you've been a victim of betrayal. It is describing someone who turns against you, someone you trusted, someone who was given secrets, someone who was given confidentialities, someone you trusted your word with and your life with who turned against you. It describes duplicity, unfaithfulness, and a total and complete sellout. It is very bad if a husband betrays his wife or vice versa. It is very bad if a government employee betrays his country and gives away secrets. Those are all bad. But I want you to notice this morning, the greatest and worst betrayal that ever happened in history was when Judas Iscariot betrayed and turned against our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will go down in history as having committed the greatest betrayal that ever happened. I want you to see some things with me today about the marks of Judas. We want to see Judas in in his character, Judas in his life, Judas in his ending. First of all, I want you to consider with me his privileged role. The name Judas, if you want to write this down, the name Judas, and Judah actually is a very good name. The name Judah or Judas means this, praise or praise the Lord, okay? It's praise of the Lord. We find the very first Judah mentioned there over in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and he was the one of the sons, I think, no, the fourth son of, of Jacob and uh, Leah, and uh, his name means praise, and that's a good thing. There are several Judases mentioned. There are actually two Judases that were apostles. We have Judas Iscariot and Judas, who was, uh, who was the brother of James. Uh, we find these Jews. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ had a half-brother by the name of Jude. Jude is a good name. Judas is a very good name. It, it refers to the fact of he that shall be praised. And we find that Judas, if you'll find in your Bible, the very first mention of him is found in Matthew 10.4. It speaks of him as Judas Iscariot. 
who was, who was one of the twelve. And that was a good thing. He was, he was, he was uh, uh, inducted into the service of the Lord. In fact, everywhere we see him, he's either seen as Judas or to, to, to differentiate him from the other Judas is Judas Iscariot. Now, you might want to write this in your notes. Iscariot was his last name. Iscariot was his father's last name, was his surname, and, re, and it means this, the men of Kerioth. So it refers to an area of the, of the area of Judah that he was from. Luke 22, 23 means that, tells us that he was of the men of Kerioth there. And so when we look at him, uh, we, we see a man who had a very good name. So I want you to see some things about the privileged role, because Judas, as he comes onto the page of Scripture, we see a man who has a very privileged role. Notice, first of all, he had the role of an apostle. He was apostle. The word apostle means a sent one. It simply means he was one that was a messenger of God. We go to Matthew chapter 10, if you'll turn there for, with me for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 10, we have the very first mention, and it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. I, I enjoy getting there when I read my Bible or go through my devotion time, because the Lord Jesus Christ is at a place where he's assembled a number of disciples that are following him on top of a mountain, and they're looking across the fields there. And he says, the fields are wide into harvest. And he's telling them, he says, he's looked on this multitude as, uh, with compassion. And the Bible says he described them as sheep without a shepherd. And he said, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labors to the harvest. And we have to be there to just appreciate how Jesus, in his passionate way, is telling these people that are surrounding him, and men especially, to pray for labors. And then we get to Matthew chapter 10, and we find the Lord Jesus Christ having already prayed over these men. He spent the night, Mark tells us, he spent in a entire evening in prayer, praying about who God would have him to call. And the Bible says in chapter 10, verse 1, he had called unto him his 12 disciples. We go down and we read in verses 2, 3, and, and 4, we find the names of these 12 disciples. And I want you to mark that very carefully. Every one of them, their names are given. God wants to know who these 12 apostles were, who these 12 men were that Jesus was entrusting the ministry to, who he was planning on that the succession of the gospel ministry would be transferred to these men. These men would be with the Lord Jesus Christ for almost three years. These men would eat with Jesus. They would fellowship with Jesus. They would sit under the tutelage of Jesus. I mean, these men would get around Jesus. They would catch the heart of Jesus. They would sit under his preaching. They would see, they would see the miracles he would perform. They would see Jesus interact with people. They would see lepers healed. They would see the blind given their sight. They would see those who could not hear given their hearing back. They would watch him as he would go to funerals and he would touch the casket and a, and a boy who was dead was brought back to life. They were there when Jesus went over to Bethany and raised Lazarus back from the dead. I mean, you name it, everything that we read about the miracles of Jesus Christ. These 12 men were there. Jesus poured his life into these men. Jesus had every intention that these men, at the end of the third year of his ministry, would be prepared and ready to receive the gospel baton. And with this gospel baton, these men would carry on the gospel ministry. I want you to understand something. These men who consisted of fishermen, they consisted of tax collectors, they consisted of men who had patriotic zeal. One was called a zealot. These men who had came from different backgrounds, these men were being molded and shaped into the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ to carry on the ministry of God. I don't know about you, but if my occupation was I was making good money as a fisherman and I got called and inducted into the ministry of Jesus Christ and watching this ministry unfold, there's something very awesome and there's something very overwhelming about being called to serve Jesus Christ and realizing that as he said things like this, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. To think that Jesus would vest his power and Jesus would vest his authority and Jesus would vest his trust into us to serve him. 
What a wonderful thing. And the thought that these men, like Simon Peter and John and Andrew and these men, and this man, Judas Iscariot, would carry on the ministry. I mean, there's a high level of trust, a high level of confidence that these men would learn faith, that these men would learn to pray, that these men would learn, learn to how to handle the Word of God, that these men would learn how to give, that these men would learn how to, to labor through the night. They would learn how to receive rejection and not let it offend them. These men would learn how to love those who were unlovable. I mean, all of these things that are part of the ministry. Jesus was teaching them. Listen, I'm telling you something this morning. There's no pastor, there's no evangelist, there's no Bible college that could do as well as Jesus did in training these men how to serve Him in the ministry. I, mean, I don't know about you this morning, but I think about the baton that's been passed to me by my Baptist forefathers. I think about Baptist preachers who have preceded me. They've gone home to be with the Lord in heaven. And I think about that baton that's been passed to men of my generation of serving the Lord and going on. Listen, there's been some great teachers, and I can name some great men who have influenced my life. But I'm going to tell you this morning, there's nobody that could influence your life. And nobody could have trained you any better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, Jesus took these 12 men aside. You find their names written here in Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4. They're called the apostles. And we read verse 4, Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, would you notice the adjective description who also betrayed him? He was an apostle. He was serving the Lord. His commission was to preach Jesus Christ, his commission was to start churches. His commission was to set his part a lot, his life apart, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see a man who had the privilege of serving Christ. May I say this morning, it's a privilege to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy to serve our Lord. It's wonderful to serve Jesus Christ. I'm telling you this morning, it's a wonderful thing when you get saved to get involved in whatever you can do to serve Jesus Christ. And there's nothing too hard that you can do for the Lord. And there's nothing too little you can do for the Lord. And there's never enough that you can do for Jesus. I'm going to tell you this morning, if you're already involved in serving God, thank God this morning that you serve Him. Say, Lord, just give me a little bit more than I can do. Amen. But if you're not serving God, you're missing out. Oh, man. You're missing out. You're missing out. Oh, you say, but it costs. Yeah, it costs, but you don't even think about what it costs because you're having a fun time serving Jesus Christ. We've seen a man who was an apostle, but you notice in his role, we see a man who was an apostate. He was an apostate. But you notice verse 4 again in Matthew chapter 10. Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Warren Wiersbe wrote a, a book. You might want to get this book. He went home to be the Lord earlier this year. From one of the great Bible teachers and commentators of our generation. He wrote a book entitled, What is in Your Name? And in this book, he takes, I forget what number, I think it's 25 to 30 Bible characters and develops a great Bible study on each of their names. When you think of the name Judas Iscariot, the one word that comes to your mind, because we know how this all ends, is traitor. 
traitor. I remember when my daughter Carice was about four years old and Tiffany was about two. Justin had not been born yet. I wasn't in the ministry full time. And I really enjoyed my daughters. I enjoy them now. And I remember as little girls, they, were, they would sit at the table and they would take coloring books and they would color. And it was amazing, they could color for hours. We couldn't buy enough coloring books for them, if you know what I mean, you know. And I watched as I was praying over them one day and I said, Lord, I want to give my children a good name. I don't ever want to do anything that dishonors them, brings them grief. The scars are in the future. You imagine this man by the name of Judas Iscariot? A son of Kerioth. Ten times in the New Testament we find his name mentioned. It says Judas Iscariot which also betrayed him. An apostate is someone, you might want to write this down if it's not in your notes. An apostate is someone who has received and comprehends revealed truth. But he chooses to reject it. It's like this, you know how to be saved, but you say, no, I don't need it. You know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but you say, I don't believe it. You know that, that you've been shown and proven that the Bible is God's holy, infallible, eternal, inspired, inerrant word. You say, I don't believe it. You've been taught and shown that God is the creator of the world. There was no such thing as evolution. There's no such thing as a Big Bang Theory and all that kind of stuff. God spoke the world and the world came into existence. You choose to reject it. An apostate is someone who has the truth but chooses not to receive it. Go with me to the book of Jude and notice verses 11 to 13. Jude is only one chapter. I believe that the writer Jude here was the half-brother, step-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude is writing here about the end times, and I believe we're still in the end times right now. And he gives characteristics of what an apostate is all about, and he uses some examples. And notice, if you would, the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Cain was the world's first apostate. He had revealed truth. Cain had the revealed truth that the blood, by, by the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But he didn't choose the blood way. He didn't choose redemption. It's a lesson this morning. If you have never come under the blood of Jesus Christ for the cleansing of your sins, you're not saved and born again. Cain received that. He chose another way. And that's why it's called the way of Cain. And they've ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. He was covetous. He was a supreme hypocrite. And then he says they perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah, if you would, was a power-seeking politician. Interestingly, he was a relative of Moses. And Jude goes on by describing this because he had received this by, by revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes them by saying, verse 12, These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. 
clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose free fruit withereth without fruit. Notice this phrase, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raising waves of the sea, foaming it with, without their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I mean, I'm telling you this morning that the, 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 the role that, that Judas had, his response, his privilege he had. Listen, Peter described it this way in Acts chapter 1, verse 17. He said, for he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. He was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. I mean, he was an apostle, but listen, beloved, he was also an apostate. He had the gospel, he had revealed truth, but he chose to reject it. Hey, listen, this morning, he was a man who was serving, but he was a man who wasn't saved. He was a man who held the bag, but he was a man who never believed. He was a man who sat under preaching, but his heart was never pricked. Judas was close, but Jesus, Judas never got converted. Judas had responsibility, but Judas never got regenerated. Judas was an apostle. But Judas was also an apostate. I mean, I say it this morning before you get off, and you say, well, Jesus chose him, didn't Jesus? Yeah, Jesus knew. And I'm going to get to this in a minute. But every one of those men had to come to that realization and faith decision of trusting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Listen very carefully. An apostate is someone who has revealed truth, has chosen to reject it, and as the Bible describes in Jude 12 and 13, they're without fruit. They're twice dead. They're not saved. And Judas got as close to Jesus as any man could possibly get. You know, they have a saying, they said, the shepherd should, should smell like the sheep. And I believe those men, as they got around Jesus, I think they smelled like Jesus if they got around him close enough. Judas had a privileged role, and as we'll see, he blew it. We see Judas in his privileged role. Do you notice, secondly, we see Judas in his private ruse. Let's go a little bit further and see some things about Judas here. A ruse is a deception. It's a gimmick. It's a, uh, you would call, you can use the word ruse to describe someone who is a trickster. We would say probably in today's terminology that Judas was a fraud. He had everybody fooled. He would have had me fooled. And we look at this man. You go with me to John chapter 6. Would you go there, please? He was a man that was a pretender, and we find the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples the very first time speaking to them about this man. It's probably about the halfway mark of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he ministered for three years. These men did not complete a, complete a full uh, three years, probably about two and a half to two and three quarter years with Jesus. And in John chapter 6, we have the... Well, a series of events that go on there in John 6, we have Jesus multiplying the bread and, and, uh, and the, the loaves of bread and the fishes, and he fed the multitudes. 
We have later on Jesus getting on the ship. He sends the disciples ahead, excuse me, he sends disciples ahead on a ship and he comes a little bit later and he walks on the water towards them and that's where Peter walks out and reaches and meets him there and for the very first time they see Jesus walk in control of the elements again and but walking on water and, and then later on Jesus describes himself as the living bread because uh, he was emphasizing the importance of faith alone in Jesus as their savior. And uh, as he kept on going, he, we start to notice that he just got very confrontational with the people that were there. And a number of these people walked away from him. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 66. In John chapter 6, verse 66, are you there? It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, they had, they had given the pretense they were with Jesus. They showed the signs that they were there, and they showed the signs that they were, they were going to live for Christ. But what he, he got really personal with them about what it means that when you take Jesus, you've got to take all of Jesus. And when you're committed, you've got to be all the way in. And it says here in chapter 6, verse 666, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Well, I think it's a little more interesting. Look at verse 67. Then Jesus turned to the twelve. And he asked them, will you also go away? It's like this, this whole section here, walk down on the church. First, I'd be here, I'd stand here and go, wait, wait, come back, <laughs> you know. But what Jesus would do, he'd watch, watch him walk out, and then he'd go to the other sections, and he would ask you, will you also go away? Will you also go away? Will you also go away? I don't know about you, but if I was one of the 12 at that moment of time, I would be pre feeling pretty uneasy at that moment. Because when it says many of them walked away, it was a large defection of people that walked away from Jesus. Then we read a little bit further. It says, verse 68, And Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? And thou hast the words of eternal life. Thank God for Peter's insight at that moment. Amen? And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hey, I like Peter at this moment of time. He's a team player. He says, we know that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hey, listen, he said, listen, I just saw you walk on the water. You've got to be the Son of the living God. Amen? I, I just saw you. I was tired, and I was a little carnal at that time. But I saw you multiply five little barley loaves and two little anchovy fishes. I mean, understand, five little barley loaves and two little uh, fishes, that's not even a happy meal to feed your soul. Amen? He, he said, I'll watch you multiply that. And on top of that, that little boy went home with 12 laundry baskets filled with all that food. I mean, that's a lot of food, Brother Reyes. Amen? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he said this on behalf of the other eleven. Hey, we also believe. Can I tell you something this morning? If I could believe for you, I would, but I can't believe for you. You've got to believe for yourself. And Jesus is going a little bit further down. Would you notice what he says here? Wow, watch this. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and notice this verse 70. Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a, what? An angel? One of you is a preacher? No, one of you is a devil. That's how parents feel when their kids are out of hand, amen? Would <laughs> well, you notice verse 71? Because he's referring here to one of the 12 who physically was there, but in his heart he was already gone. And he said in verse 71, he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, 
for it was he that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Oh, listen, all the other 11 had no idea. They had no clue Jesus was talking about Judas. And they were all asking themselves as they did at the Last Supper, is it I, Lord, is it I? And they're all kind of just getting clammy hands and maybe uh, beads of sweat on their forehead. And they're getting very uncomfortable with this decision or this statement because he says, have not I chosen you? One of you is a devil. I imagine the sympathetic, loving eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ zeroed right in on Judas and looked at Judas in the eye, eyeball to eyeball. And Judas was like, okay, I know he's talking about me, but I'm not going to say anything. Go with me to John chapter 12. Privately, this man Judas, he's not going closer to Jesus. I want you to understand something. He's been given responsibility. He is serving the Lord. In fact, he's probably the most trusted of all the disciples. Even though he was not part of the inner three, he was probably the most trusted because Jesus trusted him with all the money. By the way, they were preachers, so they didn't have a lot of money. He gave him the bag, and he was the treasure. And I guess whenever they went to a town and people took a love offering, they gave him some money, Judas was put in charge. And I'm not sure why God chose, the Lord chose Judas over, over maybe one of the tax collectors or something like that. Matthew the tax, I'm not sure why he chose him. Maybe he was good with numbers. Maybe he was a good investor. We don't really know about that. It really doesn't matter. It's just the fact is, Jesus trusts him with the bag. We get to John chapter 12, and we have the story here. If you'll notice this in verses 1 to 12, we have the story there of Mary of Bethany. And I love how John writes this story. Her brother, Lazarus, has been raised from the dead. And Mary now, it's about a week later, and they're at the home of Simon, Simon the leper, who was a man that was a former leper that was healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, Simon, was so grateful for everything Jesus did. He said, come to my house. I prepared a great banquet. I want you to come and bring your disciples and bring your friends. And they came and there was a great festivity that was there. And uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were there. And Martha, of course, joined in to help serve. She said, listen, I've got the gift of hospitality. And I'll get involved in preparing food and doing what I can. And Martha was busy serving but with a different attitude than the last time we saw her. And Mary there, she's sitting close by and watching Jesus. But Lazarus is sitting at the table enjoying all this. And in the midst of all these things, Mary slips out the table, slips into a back room, and she carries this box called an alabaster box. The alabaster box was not very large and it had a stem that came out of it for pouring the contents in. An alabaster box is where you would have, you would keep very expensive nard, spike nard. Spikenard was, or plants that were harvested from the hills of India, and it was a very expensive aromatic plant, and you would harvest it, and you would work it, and you would transform it into a, a very wonderful smelling uh, perfume, if you would, type of oil, and so it was very expensive, and the Bible tells us in John chapter 12 that it was what she had in that, and the contents inside that box was, was the equivalent of one year's wages. You, you just take for a minute, when you filed your tax return, whatever was on your W-2, whatever showed your gross income, I mean, that was the equivalent of what was inside that box. And she had attended, she and her, probably she and her sister, they pulled all the resources together, and they were thinking, let's take this, let's take this resource, and when and our brother's dead, and she said, you know, let's, let's, we, we've got this box here, let's pour it on his body to anoint his body because of death. And they never had to do that because Jesus raised her brother back to, death, back to life. And Mary's thinking about this box. She's thinking, man, you know, Jesus did something wonderful for my, my brother. He, she gave my bro- he gave my brother back to us. And, and my brother's living, sitting here enjoying Jesus and taking advantage of the second opportunity of just having a new life. And so Mary thought, what's the best way I can show my love for Jesus? And she walks in that room with this little alabaster box. The Bible says in Mark, she broke the stem off of it. And she poured the contents on the head of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, when we think of pouring, we think it came out profusely. It did not. It was a, it was a slow dripping that was coming out. And the oil that came down the head of the Lord Jesus Christ went down his head, down his shoulder, across his chest, all the way down over his leg, all the way down to his feet. Read the story there. Now about you, but more, you talk about a, something that just riveted that moment. I mean, she comes in, breaks that stem off. Everybody knows what that box is all about. Everybody knows what it's, what it's like. And the Bible says the, 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 the smell, the, the, air, the, 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 the aroma filled the entire room. That's what it says there. And everybody knew the, the smell of nard. And everybody who knew the smell of nard said, hey, we normally use that to anoint the body of a dead person. But, but Lazarus is not dead. He's alive. Amen. And she's thinking, you know, I'm going to do something that shows my love, but I'm going to show something, do something that shows my faith in Jesus Christ. So she breaks the stem off, pours the content, it drips down the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It covers him, and it, in this moment that is an electrifying moment, I mean, it's just captivated the attention of everyone. It's a worshipful moment where everybody's thinking, man, I wish I did something like that. And I wish, and you know, I think Peter was thinking, I wish I did something like that. And how come I didn't have something expensive to give to Jesus? And I wonder if Lazarus thought, why didn't I think of that? And how come I wasn't like my sister Mary? I was thinking about Jesus Christ. I mean, I think there were a lot of thoughts in that moment of time. How come I didn't think about giving my best for Jesus that moment? But there was one other thought that permeated that room that day, and it changed the whole, the whole tone of everything. Would you look in John chapter 12? Verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, remember, this is, this, is at the, this is at a supper leading into the Last Supper. And at that moment of time, Judas Iscariot spoiled the whole moment, and he, he whispered in somebody's ear, he whispered to one of the other disciples, he said, hey, how come Jesus didn't sell this? We could have got 300 pence or the equivalent of one year's wages, and we could have given this to the poor. The truth of the matter is, he wasn't interested in the poor. The truth of the matter is, he wanted to get his hands on the money. Hey, let me tell you something. You could spot a Judas out all the time. Anytime somebody throws, when somebody's doing something great for God, and somebody surrenders his life to the mission field, and some young man gives his life to be a preacher of the gospel, and someone gives an outstanding offering to show their love for Jesus Christ, they don't tell anybody the amount, they just give them their heart's desire. When something great happens to church, a Judas always arises and has some cold water they want to put on the fire. A Judas arises to quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. A Judas arises and says, why wasn't this happening? It really wasn't that they're concerned about the poor. They just wanted to push their agenda. They want to fill their bag. And what you notice is you, if you correlate the scriptures, the Bible says there was a murmuring among all the disciples. He stirred everybody up against Mary. It got so bad, you could hear their murmuring. And Jesus had to, had to take that moment. He had to take it better in control. He says, leave her alone. You have to pour the oils. Leave her alone. Don't mess with her. Don't be critical of her gift. Don't be critical of her offering. Don't be critical of what she did there. He said, leave her alone. Listen, and he said this about Mary. He said, wherever this gospel is going to be preached, what she just did on me, because she did it in faith and anticipation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever this gospel is preached, he said, this woman, what she did, she'll be spoken as a memorial for her. Hey, he got the last word in. Let me tell you, you can say all you want against Jesus, but he always gets the last word in. 
in a private roost. Listen, Judas got this instigate. He got everybody stirred up, but nobody knew he was a pretender. Would you notice we see Judas and his, we see a third thing about Judas. Notice we see Judas in his personal ruin. We need to move very quickly. Judas now set the stage because now they're going into the upper room. And as he's going into the upper room, Judas is mad with Jesus. He's angry. He's upset with Jesus. In fact, he's a little bit distant from Jesus. I almost imagine that as all the disciples went up the stairs following Jesus up into that upper room, Judas was probably the last one. He was the caboose at the end of the train. He's angry. He's mad because Jesus rebuked him in front of all those men. He said, leave her alone. And Judas is, that's it. That's the last straw. That's it. You don't, Jesus, you're not doing the ministry the way I want you to do the ministry. And Jesus, you're not, you're taking the money. You're pouring it on yourself and you're adorning yourself when you should give it to the poor. And Jesus, you're giving attention to someone like Lazarus. And Jesus, you're healing people that I wouldn't heal. And you're touching people I wouldn't touch. He said, I've had it with you, Jesus. And so we see this man's personal room. Would you notice some things about a Judas? Notice, first of all, Judas was infiltrated. In John chapter 13, we read this. In John 13, we read and we saw this story here where Jesus, he washed the feet of all the disciples. And I think as Jesus washed the feet of those disciples, if you go back to those notes, he was, he was teaching the importance of fellowship with him and, and uh, that we need to come to him for daily cleansing and things of that nature. He's symbolically speaking of that. And I think Jesus, he did that. That was his one attempt as he's preaching the gospel to those men. It was his one last attempt for, for Judas to trust Christ because he uses two different words for washing. One talks about washing a part of the body. Another word is used is talked about washing the whole body. And he says, he that is clean needeth not to be washed. And, he was do- and, and, and I think he was looking right at Judas when he said that. He was looking right at Judas, but Judas was not responding. He could see the, he could see the ugliness in Judas's face, and he could see he was forlorn, and he was dismayed, and he really wasn't on the same page with Jesus. And we go down further, verse 26, it says, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I've dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, notice this, Satan entered into him. Hey, listen to me this morning. Judas got so bitter... He got so angry, he was so unforgiving, he became so ugly inside that he opened himself up for the strongholds of Satan to come in. The bitterness had been working in him for several hours, and now this bitterness had reached its peak. And listen, the Bible says Jesus gave a, a piece of bread that he dipped into the oil, he gave it to him, he held on it, and the other disciples were just wondering, well, I wonder why he gave him that sop. They just couldn't put it together. They couldn't comprehend what was going on. At the moment of time, as Judas reached out to take it, by the way, Judas had a choice to take it or not take it. He had a free will. He took it, and the Bible says immediately Satan entered into it. He was infiltrated by Satan. Let me tell you this morning, I don't care if you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, you're a teenager, you're married or divorced, I don't care what your status in life, what it may be. I'm going to tell you something this morning. The moment you, you, you keep living with a bitter attitude and unforgiveness and you have hatred in your heart and unresolved conflicts in your life and things are going on, listen, you've opened yourself up for major attack from the devil and the devil's just looking for that opportunity when you've hit that breaking point where you're no longer going to come back. Listen, the devil will infiltrate your life and that's where listen instead of jesus christ and a moment of passion should have been in control of time of judas iscariot it was satan that controlled that moment of time and don't tell me that couldn't happen here listen we can be in the midst of revival we can be in the midst of great preaching we can be in the midst of people getting saved we can be in the midst of great faith promise offerings and praise god for a church that's responded so lovingly to help support missions and we could be in building programs but even in the midst of that someone could get angry with god and someone could be upset with jesus christ and they've allowed themselves to be in a place where satan 
Satan has entered in. And wonder this morning, Satan got control of your life? He's infiltrated, but notice his infamy. And quickly, I want you to notice these passages in Scripture. We don't have time to read them, but notice there was the bargaining in his infamy. In Matthew 26, verses 14 to 15, we find there that Judas, right, where he leaves the upper room and he goes down to the high priest, the chief priest, and those men. And he asks this question. He says, what will you give me and I will deliver him unto you? He already knew those men wanted Jesus Christ. Listen, at that moment in time, he bargained for Jesus. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Hey, beloved, 30 pieces of silver was the price you'd pay for a slave on the open market. Jesus was nothing to him but a cheap bargaining tool. He said, listen, what will you give me? And I will give it to you. They said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He said, I'll take it. The greatest sell had ever occurred was in Judas Scary that sold out our Lord Jesus Christ. He had a cheap view of Jesus. He, had, he held Jesus in such low value. Hey, what if this morning are we at a place in our life we hold Jesus in such low value? We're bargaining between this and bargaining between Jesus. Listen, Judas Iscariot, he sold himself out and he sold Jesus off. Listen, he said the greatest sell it ever occurred was when he sold Jesus. There's a bargaining for Jesus. But notice, do you notice the betrayal of Jesus? Matthew 26, 40, verses 47 to 50, we have the record there. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and sat from the chief priests and elders of the people. I find it very interesting that Judas, when the betrayal happened, did not happen in the daytime. It happened at night. And even though Judas was leading the way, I want you to notice this betrayal because as we read this, it should break our hearts and stir us in terms of our discipleship for Christ. Verse 48, he told those priests and those men that came, they gave him 600 men. He that betrayed, it says, now he that betrayed him gave him a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, hail master, and he kissed him. We termed and called that the betrayer's kiss. kiss on someone's cheek was a sign of proper affection, loyalty. There's nothing sensual about it. It was symbolic of friendship and affection, of loyalty. So good to see you. Agent Rogers described the kiss that Judas made as, as a coal of hot fire right out of hell. Jerry Vine says that Judas came like a slithering serpent in that, in that garden of Gethsemane, just like the garden that the serpent that came to Eve, he came like a slithering serpent. And he describes it this way. He says he was like a serpent that came to Jesus, and he said there was a hiss on the kiss. He kissed away his association. He kissed away his discipleship. He kissed away. He made it known there among those people he was standing with. I no longer am associated with them. And I would just want you to know that I just did that as a preacher. He kissed Jesus off. Let me tell you this morning. The worst thing you could do is kiss Jesus off. Received the kiss of the betrayer. But notice the consortium of the betrayer. The Bible says something very interesting. John 18, 5. It says, and Judas, which betrayed him, stood with them. 
He stood with the haters of Jesus. He stood with the perpetrators of evil. There was a bargaining in his infamy. There was betrayal in his infamy. Notice the bitterness in his infamy. Jesus has been taken. They're about to crucify him on the cross. Judas awakens the fact, I just sold out Jesus. They're going to kill him. I thought they were just going to throw him in prison and throw a few lashes, but they're going to actually crucify him. He knew what that meant. And listen, he was filled with a sense of remorse, but it was not a repentant remorse, if I can say that. And we read here in Matthew chapter 27 that, that he comes back to these men, and the Bible says in verse 3, he says, And Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. He didn't repent to Jesus. He repented within himself. He was feeling sorry for himself. He repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went and he hanged himself. What a tragedy. Jesus was going on the cross for Judas' sins and he had the opportunity. He could have gone to the cross just like one thief did. He could have said, Jesus, I messed up. I'm sorry I sold you out. Jesus, I'm sorry I've been with you for two and a half years and I didn't catch the message. I didn't see all that you were doing. He could have said, Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus, I repent of my sins. But no, the Bible says Judas repented of himself. He didn't repent of Jesus. He repented within himself. And you'll notice here that he gets this place. He is in the extreme bitterness of soul. He could not find it within himself to ask God for forgiveness. He was so filled with bitterness that even his pride itself overtook him. You see his personal ruin. Quickly, would you notice his pitiful remembrance? It says he went out and hanged himself. It was a tragic ending. What do we remember about Judas? What would you remember with me? His perdition. You said the word perdition in the Bible. He's called the son of perdition. In fact, Jesus said that of him in John chapter 18, 17. He says, when I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. That, that, that those that thou gavest me I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition. And write this down. Perdition means everlasting destruction. In fact, Jesus said about, about this man in Matthew 26, he said, The Son of Man goeth that is written of him, but woe unto him by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Now you listen to me very carefully because we're almost done. Judas died unsaved. Judas looked like a church member. Jesus served like a church member. Jesus had his name on the roster. He was one of the elite 12. But Judas died and is in hell right now because he never repented of his sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. He's called the son of perdition. He had every opportunity, even leading into the Last Supper, he had every opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. Even when he had those 30 pieces of silver and the Spirit of God pressing against that Satan controlled and that sin hardened conscience, he had, every, he had every opportunity to turn to Jesus, but he did not so. And he took a rope and he went outside. The Bible says he went and hanged himself. Listen, his perdition he's lost forever. And it's kind of interesting. If you go over to Acts chapter 1, if you turn there. In Acts chapter 1, we read in verse 13. A listing of the apostles minus the name of Judas. Remember we saw the names of the apostles in Matthew chapter 10? 
Listen to me. Look up here. Eleven names are mentioned. One is missing. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me that in God's book of life, his name is not there either. He's omitted. He's blotted out. He's taken out. Listen, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, your name is not there. You'll spend all of eternity in hell. The Bible says, Revelation 20, 15, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see his perdition, but notice his purchase in Matthew, Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter describes what happened to the 30 pieces of silver. Notice what it says here. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder the midst, and all his bowels got shot, kind of a very gruesome description. And was known, listen to this, and was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Everybody knew what Judas had done. Finally, everybody figured it out. Hey, listen, people are going to know whether you're saved or not saved. He went out and he hung himself, and as he was hanging on that branch, the weight of his, the weight of his body kept bending that branch and bending that branch, and soon after, it wasn't long, that he fell from that branch and he fell over a precipice, and as he did so, the Bible describes that he burst asunder his body. His body probably was bloated up with liquids and air and things of that nature, and when it hit bottom on those rocks below, it exploded and everything gushed down. It's just, just a very, very, very gross description given here in Acts chapter 1 of what happened to him, and his body was all over that, his blood was all over that place there, and the Bible describes it this way in verse 19 of Acts chapter 1, and was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch that the field is called in the proper tongue a seldomah, that is to say, the field of blood. Hey, listen, that became the most despised piece of real estate in all of Jerusalem. No real estate agent, no real estate broker, no, nobody that was interested in real estate, no investor would dare touch that plot of ground because it had no value associated with it. It had bad value. That money purchased his demise. So what do we learn from that this morning? Well, I want to give you the pressing responsibility and we're done. This man left behind a memory betrayal. Peter is saying, we've got, to, we've got to do something about this because, listen, nobody's going to build a house there. They says that, that no one, That's what he said in Acts chapter 1. He said, no one's going to build a house there. So what do we learn from this? First of all, can I encourage you this morning as a brother and sister in Christ? Don't let what Judas did blindside you from serving God. Amen. Peter said in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, and his bishopric or his office, let another take. Now, that's a, that's a quotation from Psalms 41, 9. And I think Peter was searching the mind of Christ as they were praying. And he searched over and over again, came to the conclusion that Judas failed. Hey, listen, he came to the conclusion Judas failed, but he had to encourage those other apostles, those servants of God. Even though Judas failed, listen, the office of the apostles don't fail. Can I tell you something this morning? Maybe somebody you trust and somebody that you love failed in their Christian life. But that doesn't mean the Christian life is a failure. And that doesn't mean church is a failure. And listen, there have, been, there have been times when pastors have fallen, pastors have messed up. And listen, you can get to the extreme like many people do. They get so disillusioned because a pastor messed up. Hey, listen, a pastor might mess up, but the office of pastor never fails. God is still in control of that situation. Can I tell you something? Judas may have failed, but Jesus never fails. Jesus is in control. He's never failing us. He'll never fail you. Sin is terrible no matter what. But God's work does not stop no matter what happens. Don't let what Judas did or somebody else did blindside you. Listen, if there's ever a time, we ought to be motivated, inspired to do something great for Jesus Christ today. There's the second thing we're done. Don't let what Judas did blindside you. But secondly, are you truly saved? Are you a pretender? You look the Christian look, you walk the Christian walk, you shake hands like a Christian handshake is, you participate, you serve, you do all those things, and I don't care whether it's been one month or a hundred years. Listen, if you're not truly saved, born again, you better get saved today. 
Because the Apostle Paul wrote to believers just like that that were in the city of Corinth. And he said this to them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? Except ye be reprobates. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the great artists of his time. The many paintings he's famous for is famous for the painting of the Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci had a lot of peculiarities about him. And one of those peculiarities, he was a perfectionist when it came to painting. He wanted to find a man whose face he felt embodied. The sweetness, the love, the peace, the joy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He searched the streets of Rome, Italy, and he came across a young man who sang in a choir of one of the churches in Rome of Italy. This man's name was Pietro Bandolini. Don't forget that name. Pietro Bandolini. He found this man. He conversed with him. He said, Sir, Sir, Mr. Bandolini, Senor Bandolini, I would like for you to model and sit there because I like to borrow your face as the face I'm going to put up there for the Lord Jesus Christ. He took care of the face of Jesus. He took care of the face of Simon and Andrew and Peter and John and all the other 11 except for the one, Judas. He thought, man, Judas was so evil. Judas was so dark in his soul. Who can you find that can model the face of Jesus? One year went by, and two years went by, and three years went by, and four years went by, and five. Listen, almost 25 years went by. Leonardo da Vinci couldn't find a suitable picture or face for Judas Iscariot. One day he was doing his daily walk, and he decided to turn a corner and go into an area that was very rough. He saw a man there with a wild look on his face. Hair disheveled. He was forlorn. His face looked very darkened inside as if there's much trouble in that man's soul. The man looked up and knew that was Leonardo da Vinci, but he didn't want to look him eye to eye. Da Vinci kept looking at him, kept looking at him, kept looking at him. He said, sir. Before we could get out the question, could I take you and pay you a a good amount of money to be the face of Judas. The man looked up with tears coming down his eyes. He said, don't you remember me? Don't you remember me? I'm the man that you chose as your model for the face of Jesus Christ. I'm the man that you chose as your model for the face of Jesus Christ. Looks are deceiving. You can look okay on the outside, but examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Did you truly repent of all your sins? I'm calling Jesus to save you. Are you relying on baptism? 
church membership, the faith of a family member. No, every person has come of their own cognizance with a heart of contriteness, a heart of repentance, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. I tell you this morning, God loves you. Judas went out and hanged himself. If you're not saved, get saved this morning. I can't imagine being so close to Jesus. You reject the offer of salvation. I can't imagine being forgiven of my sins and having the Holy Spirit live inside of me and not trying to do my best for Jesus Christ. This morning, would you be a committed disciple? Would you take a stand for Christ? Would you honor the Lord? We've seen the marks of a Judas.